Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you also, I have to say, for all the wonderful comments that you leave and that you share with me about the show and about all my wonderful guests. It, it really is an honor to do this. And I, what can I say to you? It touches my heart greatly. Truly, it does. And in these times, especially when we seem to be so far apart from those people that mean so much to us, and yet somehow we are all fighting through the darkness and the light in in order, actually, to find what it is inside our souls that keeps us going and hopefully fulfills that part in our life that we can find the meaning for our life. Now, darkness and light is a very strange thing. I find one doesn't really exist without the other. And yet the light is something that is intrinsically deep within us. Yet so many things that happen in our life create so much darkness. And it really takes a huge act of bravery to survive all of these things. And in fact, to be able to remain true to ourselves. And then one says, well, who are we really? Who are we? Do we hide behind masks or facades or behind images? This is one of the most difficult things I think in life is to be honest with ourselves and then be honest with other people. But unless we are, we can never be free. And we can never untangle those chains from the past that then can set us free to live a better life, hopefully helping others along the way. Now, I am really delighted to welcome today's guest, who is Perry Power. This story is an incredible one. And I've had some really, really sad stories on the podcast. I've had some really happy ones. And I don't really know where to put this. I'm I'm going to leave that with you. But what I can say, it is one of courage and bravery. And quite frankly, it's not an easy one to talk about for so many people. Yet it has to be shared. I really believe that. As so many people suffer in silence for so many different things, but especially this subject, which I will get on to. And as I said, unless we face the darkness, we cannot know the light. 
So let me tell you a little bit about Perry. Perry is an actor and an author of the Amazon best-selling book, Breaking the Silence, which deals with the delicate and harrowing subject of sexual abuse. Perry's mission is to do everything he can to make a positive change in the world through his storytelling. Ranking up 2.3 million likes and 125,000 followers on TikTok, his message of helping sexual abuse survivors break their silence speaks to the hearts of so many people all over the world. And it's something that is, I think, still a taboo. And I think because of this, so many people don't get the help that they need. But Perry has a charity called We Rescue Kids, where children are rescued from sexual abuse and given the support they need to heal and positively move forward. He has recently appeared on MTV, Sky, Thrive and Good Men Project, hoping that this story continues to impact the lives of those who need to hear it the most. Today, he shares his incredible story, and courageous journey. Welcome, Barry. Thank you very much. What a, what an entry. Um, but um, I really appreciate it. I wrote down something you you said that I thought was actually quite fascinating. Wrote it down. Did you? Yeah, you mentioned about the light and the dark and how one doesn't exist without the other. Mm. I find it interesting. I have a question. Do you think darkness should exist in, in order for there to be light? You know what? I've asked myself the same question and I'm really not wise enough, um, I'm sure, to answer it, but I can try. I feel that it's something that I was contemplating really most of my life and my childhood. Um, And what I discovered was that everything needs the darkness and the reason we need night and we need the day. If we plant a seed, it's in darkness. It needs the darkness. A child, all of us, before we were born, we were in the womb. And that was dark. It was a completely different world. So yes, actually, in my humble opinion, I would say we do need that. Otherwise, how else would we know the light? Mm. Yeah, I I, I very much agree. It's a great answer. I agree. If somebody was to ask me, my, my answer would be very similar mm. because I'm, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't sit here and say to somebody who's never faced adversity before, I can't wait for you to face adversity because of a horrible thing. However, what I will say is mm. I do believe that we all should face adversity and adversity being coming in a form of darkness because that I, I have grown into the person that I am today and I've, I've, you know, this, this, these wounds, these battle scars, right, have come from what's happened in the darkness. And whilst I understand some people stay in the darkness because they can't come out, just like my dad, which we'll talk about, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it, if if one is able to find the light within the dark and they're able to come out, the person that they are on the other side is somebody who you can't mess around with because that person has been formed from the mm. and, and the challenges that they have faced, which you're right, comes through the darkness. I've just, I've always known that, but I've never put it down to how you mentioned it in regards to the light and the dark and one can't exist without the other. So that's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I totally understand what you're saying. I do not wish adversity upon anyone, but I also realize that unless there is adversity, unless people go through a lot of hardship, they usually don't learn the same lessons as those who haven't. And I feel that people like yourself and other people that I've met, myself included, that have had quite a difficult time in many aspects are now trying to reach out to others because they actually had to go through that. They had to go through all the tests and trials and tribulations in order to be, I wouldn't say leaders in a way, but in a way, the light, so to speak. Because unless you have been on a path, on a journey, you can't help other people get to that place. You can't help other people reach that place of freedom unless you know the way. Yeah. So you know the way, Perry. And that's why, let's go to the beginning because it's, it, it, it's such, I have to say to the listeners, it is an absolutely incredible story and I as I said to Perry I had to get him on to the podcast because I feel strongly in my heart that it will help so many people now Perry let's go back a little bit to where you're because you've done so many things in such a short time and I would really like people to take so much from this so let's go back to the beginning how did it all begin where did your journey begin so it began in London. I'm a Londoner, although right now I currently live in Guildford for any of the UK and people overseas. It's okay. Very how many people in America know of Guildford? Um, no. <laughs> Everybody know. just knows London. Sorry? <laughs> Everybody, when you go abroad and you say, where are you from? London. And you say, actually, no, it's not London. And they say, well, we only know London. Okay, then, then it's from London. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> North, we might as well just tell them you live in London. Yeah, you might as well because that's the only place <laughs> that exists. Okay, so you're you're now in Guildford, but now, originally you're a London boy. Okay, I'm a London boy, West London. Mm. Music. Mm-hmm. I come from a broken home, as they call it. So my my biological mother, she walked out when I was four years old. Uh, Auto to note, we have a great relationship now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she came back into my life and. I used to see her about once a year. Then as I grew older throughout my teenage years, it became more consistent and it was every second weekend and what have you. But she left when I was four. So it was just me and my dad, which is an interesting one anyway, because it's usually, whether it's morally correct or not, usually it's the dad that leaves. It's the man that leaves and it's the mother. Yeah. But uh, this way around, it was, it was the other way around. And so it was just me and my dad. A couple of years later, my stepmom came into the picture. My stepmom is South African. So I was pretty much raised from the English dad and the, the South African stepmom. They have their own own ways of um, being and parenting, which is a great mix. Mm. And then they got married over in SA. And I was the um, I was the best man. The best I was like nine years old and I was the best man at my dad's wedding, which is cool. Came down <laughs> yeah. with the rings. I what I didn't know was I was the one who was running the show, not there. It wasn't their day. It's my day. And, uh, and <laughs> now uh, tell me, sorry to interrupt you. So you, your mum, your biological mum left when you were four yeah. and you were alone with your dad until 
couple of years. Nine years old. Well, I so she left when I was four, and my dad and stepmom they started dating maybe a year or about a year later, like loosely dating. And then she mm-hmm. moved in when I six or seven. It's so about three years after my mom left, she moved in. Okay. Okay. Okay, because it's important, I think, to know um, the timeline of it all, as in, you know, how how old were you? And, you know, because these are very formative years, aren't they? Up to the age of seven, they're very formative. And that's how you see the world in yourself up to the age of seven, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Mm. Yeah. And Okay, so you went to South Africa and they got married. Got married. I was... I can't remember exactly. I was either seven, eight, or nine years old. I was just under 10. So it was around that age when they got married. And I I was very close with my auntie and my cousin. My cousin is practically my sister. We grew up together. And this is my dad's sister. So my dad's side of the family. So they mm-hmm. live in the same area, just outside of Chiswick. Chiswick in a place called Acton. But it's basically the same thing for people who don't know. And That's near Ealing? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right that area of the world okay yeah so we I would go around all the time so my stepmom would drop me off at my auntie's house she would take me to school so I was there a big part of my childhood was in my auntie's house and they would, she would take me to school she would pick me up so I was always with my cousin and because near their house my my nan lives near they my nan lives nearer to my auntie's house and then to my house where I grew up in Chiswick. So I used mm-hmm. to go around a lot with my cousin, sometimes with my auntie. And in the house, it was my nan, it was my granddad, it was her husband. So is that your is that your dad's mum and dad? Exactly. Yeah, my mm-hmm. dad's yeah, my dad's mum, um, and my dad's stepdad, yeah. So mm-hmm. they they lived there. We would go around there fairly, fairly frequently. And it there was there was this one time I was 11 and a half, nearly 12 years old. We were all around Anand's house. And there's a few people sitting in the living room. I was sitting on my granddad's lap, just watching TV. And so I was, yeah, just over 11. And I was on his lap, he was watching TV, he was watching, um, uh, what was it called? Egg, egg, is it egg Hunters or something? Mine not. I can't remember what it's called, but it was, it was basically like a question chat show. Mm-hmm. I'm watching TV. And my stepmom, because of how I was, my granddad was sitting in, in like a single armchair. I was on his lap facing the TV because of how the sofa that we were sitting on was, because of how it was angled, nobody could really see anything. My stepmom was on the couch on the other side of the living room and she was watching TV. My granddad used to smoke roll-up cigarettes and he had his arm over the arm of the chair, right? So his hand was dangling down with the cigarette in between his two fingers and it dropped. So it fell out of his hand, fell onto the carpet. My stepmom didn't really take much notice. She's watching TV, assuming he would lean over and pick up a cigarette. Mm. But moments go by and he doesn't. And it's still on the floor and it's now burning into the carpet. And she's looking at the cigarette, looking at me sitting on his lap she couldn't see anything, but her spidey senses just w- flew off the chart. She stood up, walked out of the living room, called me into the kitchen. Now, I, by the way, don't remember any of this. I don't remember this whole this whole event. 
and and I still don't to this day. And, and who was it that um, reminded you of it? Your stepmom. My stepmom, yeah. So mm-hmm. she remind, she reminded me of it, which I'll get onto how that all came about, mm. uh, which was a few years ago. And so she called me into the kitchen. She asked me questions. I don't think I was given her the right answers. That were well, the answers that she assumed would be the case, but I wasn't kind of like given in. And then she called my dad. And then we then went home and was driving home. And apparently in the car, it was like an interrogation because I think my dad had a feeling what was going on. He's questioning me. Then I spoke out about what he was doing to me. I was basically sitting on his lap and he had his hand down my pants and he was playing with me. And that was fairly frequently. But basically that, that, that happened. And then they put a stop to me going around there. And I never, went, I never saw my nan again until two years later because my granddad died from a heart attack at work. And then they allowed me to go back around to the house and start seeing my nan again. But that event was the last case of molestation from my granddad because he had been sexually abusing me prior to that for about a year and a half. Okay. So from the age of about 10 for a year and a half, mm-hmm. he would do things like that to me. I would either be on his lap, people in the room, people know the room. He would press himself up against me. He would breathe in my ear. He would tell me to be quiet. Um, he touched me up in different rooms of the house, and it was a it was a it was a constant constant thing that happened. I I look I I didn't know at that age what what was going on. Like mm. I didn't know that it was a bad thing that he was doing. It wasn't like I was like oh I'm scared to go around there because I don't want him to do this to me because it's not right. I should tell somebody mm. in my head. Mm. It it was just. Yes, it was a bit odd, but that was the extent of it. It was just a bit odd. I don't but know. no one had taught you that that wasn't the correct way to no. behave. No, but then I'd, I, I could be wrong, but this was, we're talking 17 years ago. As far as I'm aware, that wasn't really a thing 17 years ago for it to be a talking point as much as it is now. Yeah, but, you know, I'm sure now being involved in the work that you are, you see that this is actually quite um a horrific thread that goes through society for many many years that's Mm. been going on you know 100 years even more so and it's only now i suppose that people speak about it as you said that um it's getting the sadly the recognition in some way that it needs to get because for people to speak up like yourself um it's just a shocking story and it's shocking always to hear about it but I what I wanted to ask you was is were you do you remember these incidences or are these just from what other people have said to you did your memory come back to you no I I remember most of them you do remember Yeah. yeah because a lot of people don't and something sometimes they can be talking or you know watching something as we were talking earlier before we came on and it will trigger something and they'll suddenly everything will come out because so many people spend their lives suppressing this even in denial i suppose hiding behind it so that's why um it's you know interesting that you do remember these episodes yes i i i'm 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 sure there's ones that I still don't remember today. Like mm. why I say that is because I was under the impression that I was that I remembered 
I don't remember all of them from start to finish, but I remember some of them start to finish. Some of them I remember just looking up and he would put his fingers to his lips and tell me to shush. You know, that's the only thing I remember from that event. However, when I started writing my book last year, mm-hmm. it was very strange because I was writing and then I remember um, being in my bed upstairs and I was on a video call with my girlfriend at the time. And I was talking to her about, you know, what I was writing in the book. And I, I kid you not, I have no idea um, why this memory had just unlocked within that moment. But it was like, I don't know, it's like you see it in a film where they just like um, take a step back in time to when they were X age and, and relive in that moment. And it, it unlocked the memory for, there was a time... And it was pretty much very near the end of when my stepmom caught it. I, my, my stepmom and my dad wanted a date night as well as my auntie and her, her boyfriend at the time. So mm. I decided to do a double date night and I was going to stay around my nan's house. And I remember being on the couch downstairs and I was crying and they were walking, walking out. My auntie was looking at me thinking I was crying because I was going to be bored. And, and at the time, I, I, I that's, part of it is because I was going to be bored and part of it is because it, uh, it just felt uncomfortable because that was the only other time I stayed there overnight ever. Mm. And I remember I was upstairs. I had a spare bedroom and I was lying in bed. My nan was standing next to the door, which was open was in, in a sort of doorway. My granddad had his arm around her and they're both looking at me saying, good night, Perry. And I remember staring at my granddad and I remember in my head, I said good night to him, but I remember in my head, and I've completely forgotten his whole memory till I was lying in bed mid writing the book. And it just slapped me in the face, this memory. And I was lying in that bed and I was staring at my granddad and I was saying to myself in my head, I, I, I hope he doesn't come in tonight. I hope he doesn't come in here tonight. I hope he doesn't come inside. At that age, I had no idea what rape was. Like, I had no idea at that age what rape was. So mm. I, didn't, I didn't, I wasn't like, I hope he doesn't come in here and rape me. Now looking back, that's ultimately what it was. But I was just like, if he does that to me during the day, because people's in the house, people's not in the house, what's he going to do to me when I'm here at night once my nan's gone to sleep? And I remember that was probably the most scared and vulnerable I've ever been in my entire life as a child. Um, thank God he never came in that night. Thank God. Right. Mm-hmm. Never came in that night. But when I remembered that memory mid writing a book and I was lying in bed upstairs on that video call, she had to stay on that video call with me like throughout the night so that I'd wake up and she was still on the phone. So I wasn't alone. That's how much it made me feel like that when I remembered it, that, that memory. So in answer to your question, I remember some of them last year, this brand new one just got po- popped open into my mind. So that may happen again in the future. I'm not too sure, but I know I remember most of them. The human soul and the human psyche is a very intricate and complicated thing, isn't it? Because in a way, it's like, you know, a kaleidoscope. When you turn the kaleidoscope one way, you know, by you writing the book, in a way, it's like a release, isn't it, of all these memories and all these feelings. And you don't know when you release one thing, what comes out of the Pandora's box next? Yeah. Because it sort of follows um, a strange type of connection within us. And a lot of people suppress that and not just with sexual abuse, with abuse or with any bad memories. We all have this tendency, I think, for things that we naturally so that we don't like 
we then pretend it never happened. And then that's complicated because half your life then never happened because then you don't know who you are. And I, I, I had this friend and she never really is her true self because she suffered um, also at the hands of an abuser. And she even says to me, you know, I don't really know who I am. So I think that you've done it early on in life that you've tried to conquer these demons. I think it's a huge credit to you as a person, Barry. It, it's extremely brave of you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and and this is why I, I talk about my dad so much because I, I he, which we'll get onto later on, but I truly believe yeah. his, his death is is what his death is helping save lives you know his story didn't his his body died but his soul and his story still lives on through my message through my work you know i'm telling people you don't go down the same road that my dad went down where you live in silence and you die in silence before the age of 50 that's that's sad it's very very it's tragic in a way um that it takes sometimes people's deaths to help other people live. And somehow I think your dad, for example, they're some of the bravest souls because they sacrifice themselves in a way for inadvertently you not to go through even more torture. And then through you sharing your story with the world, so many other thousands and thousands of people hopefully seeking help. Tell us a little bit about, so the abuse stopped when your, is it your step-grandfather? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Only when he died or did it stop before then? No, it stopped before then. So that event when mm-hmm. my stepmom was in the living room, she mm-hmm. saw what may have been going on. And then we, we left there and that's when it stopped because I never went around there again. Then he died two years later. And how did you feel? Um, I have to ask you this. How did you feel when you stopped going around um, to see them? Because I know some people become guilty when, in fact, they don't need to feel that. But how did you feel that you weren't going around there? Were you relieved or were you sad about that? Um, I was sad because I, I remember, I do know at that age, um, I still didn't fully understand um, that uh, I didn't truly understand that it was abuse. So when I stopped going around there, it wasn't like I was damaged in a way where the shame and all that started at that age. You know, I was 11, 12. None of it started until my late teenager years. But at the time, I... I was upset because I didn't fully understand why I couldn't go around there again. You know, I didn't understand why I couldn't see my nan anymore unless it was going to Sainsbury's and seeing her at the checkout because that's where she worked. I didn't fully get why my dad wasn't allowing me to go around there anymore. And they didn't explain that to you? Well, they they explained in in the words of, it, it's not okay what he was doing to you. That's That's the extent... They never sat me down and gave me a detailed conversation like you would a child with the birds and the bees. They never 
went down that path for me. They were just, what he was doing to you wasn't okay. You need to understand that it wasn't okay. That was really what they just said. But like, they're still, um, you know, I don't, it, it, I don't know. I, under, I understand. I understand because a friend of mine, um, they, her and her partner were going to be foster parents and they go through this. They talk about this. And apparently she said that what happens with the children is unless they're told this is wrong, they actually don't know it's wrong. Yeah. And that's in fact the truth, because I think this is why a lot of these abuse cases, nobody ever finds out. And then it keeps going generation to generation is because nobody actually educates the child to say, you know, if such and such a person does this, or if anyone does this, you have to know that this is wrong. Mm. Yeah. So I think the difficulty is there that somehow the abusers make it a completely normal thing to do. Yeah, you're right. And somebody somebody left a comment on a post of mine uh, two days ago. And mm-hmm. she said, she's like, Perry, I'm a parent. And I read in your story, I feel like you're the best person to ask. And she's like, mm-hmm. I have a child. How do I stop this from happening? And first of all, I said, well, first of all, you need to understand that I'm not a parent. So this advice, take it with a grain of salt, because I don't want to come at you as if I'm a parent talking to a parent. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is that I do, to piggyback off what you're saying there, Mimi, is that I truly believe that kids, they get to a certain age where the parents sit them down and talk about sex, they talk about the birds and the bees. So they know, they know if that they have the choice. Well, the first they know that sex is an actual thing, then they get taught that it's a choice as to whether they want to have it or not, right? Mm. And so that so it becomes a conversational topic but when it comes to abuse sexual abuse and people taking advantage is not a conversation um and i guess it's because you know people like i don't want to have to sit my five-year-old child down and start talking about sexual abuse like they shouldn't be hearing about things like that and i do understand why some parents are like that of course i do i do mm. but is also facing the reality that we live in a world where this does and can happen. And, and I was saying to her in this comment, I was like, parents need to be talking to their children about sexual abuse in a, I don't want to say in a fun way, but in a way that children would understand like you would the birds and the bees. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. a conversational topic and it gets to, it comes to the, the awareness of children. Then that is a great foundation to start from to then build upon that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I remember being a child myself and my mom especially was very hot on this and would say, you know, if anyone does this or this or this, you have to tell me because it's not right. And she drummed it into my head. And to the point, I mean, it's this is a funny thing you'll find probably funny, but I actually thought the babies came with the stalk until I was like, 10 and had sex education at school I thought at school they showed us this video and I thought that's just absolutely ludicrous you, that's not how babies are made I thought the stork I was looking for bloody storks all this time you know so there is I understand you want to keep the innocence yeah, but especially in this world Perry it's so difficult unfortunately you have to start young don't you mm-hmm. You do. You do have to start young. Like I remember growing mm. up, 
and I remember growing up and I don't know if it's location dependent but growing up in London it was the norm for your 16 year old friends to have lost their virginity right like when you're 16 yeah. I remember being 16 and, and I mean I hadn't lost my virginity until I was 17 but I remember being 16 and people were like oh, you haven't had sex yet come on dude that was the thing but now yeah. I've got a brother right and so I hear I hear his talk and I hear him around his friends and friends and their younger brothers and sisters and <laughs> me growing up with 16 being you know the, the sort of the age where people start having sex usually now is a lot less than that you know it's yeah mm. so in answer to you know to what you said there about is they're getting younger it's true so if they're getting younger with having sex then it gets to a point where well, yeah they're getting younger so we need to start talking about sexual abuse because if they're, if they're having sex at an early age and they need to have their awareness built around sexual abuse too Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, knowledge is power. And we all want to believe that the storks bring the babies, but, you know, it, it's not a reality. And especially in these times, like, you know, with so many stories out there um, that go on, it, it's imperative that people educate their children to know what's out there. Otherwise, how can you keep safe, especially with the internet and everything that's so open and it's sort of rammed down your throat. All these things, there are some very good things, of course, but there are some terrible things that go on out there mostly, I have to say, sadly. Mm. So, you know, but I wanted to ask you actually whether you had brothers and sisters. So did you grow up with any brothers and sisters or did this brother come along later? Uh, there's 10 year difference between us. So when... You know, so I'm he's not... your younger brother now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Now, you were going to tell us about your dad. Yes. So, so the, so the abuse stopped when I was 12. And when, when my dad found out about what happened, he mm. told me, to be, he said to keep quiet, right? Mm -hmm. So when he's like, you know, you, you're not going to be going around there again. Um, and also don't start telling people at school about this and just just keep it to yourself. That's what he said. Just keep it to yourself because they don't want a black cloud over the family name about abuse. That was their reasoning. So, mm -hmm. so I did. I kept it to myself. And Was that difficult? Um, well, the interesting thing is, is I want to say no, especially when it was early on. Mm. it was when I it was it, it got difficult when I was 16 17 that's when it started to get difficult because my awareness had been built I'd spent so many years not speaking to anybody about it and because I see more of it on the news and I'd hear more about it from my cousin I did then the shame and and the guilt and the blaming started to grow and that's when it started to get difficult so from the age of like 12 to 16 so we're talking about four years there throughout school it wasn't, it wasn't really because I, you know, I was a kid just day to day, hanging out my, hanging out my mates and stuff like that. However, now I, I don't remember this too. And it was only when um, a couple of years ago, I think like two or three years ago, my mom sent me a screenshot of a letter she found at home. Throughout school, I had a, um, I don't know what you'd call them. It's like, a, it's like a, well, yeah, it's a school counselor. So every school has them, you know. I remember them. Yeah. 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 So I used to have a school counselor. Now, 
the reason why I had a school counsellor was because apparently, I don't remember doing this, but I was in class one day and she, the teacher, gave us work to do in a class and that was just to write a story, any story, a story for whatever you guys want to do. I think it was English and they wanted to test our English writing skills. Mm-hmm. And for an unbeknown reason, the story that I wrote was about my granddad molesting me. Oh. And, and I, but I wrote it and gave it into the teacher as if like nothing, as if it was nothing. Not, I didn't think she would then call my parents and get a school counselor in and then everything would just go upside down. I didn't think it's very interesting why I done that. I don't remember doing that. It was only when I read this letter from the school counselor that my mom took a picture of. It said on there about it was the first letter that they sent out from the school counselor to my parents saying that she wants to counsel me on a weekly basis because of what they found in English class. But I right. do remember though, I do remember my dad's reaction and he was pissed to say the least. Um, I do mm. remember him. My dad had a bit of an anger. Not for, he, didn't, he didn't beat me or anything like that, but temper wise, he had a bit of a temper and he um, was very angry that I would even think about speaking about something like this in a school classroom in a story. Um, and so I remember I had weekly sessions with my counsellor. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't re- really remember much of them. And we never really talked about the abuse that much. I think, I don't know why. But uh, but then my nan then passed. So we sold their house, right? So we done up the house, we sold the house. And then with the money that I got from the house, my dad and stepmom was like, right, we're going to move out of London because we can get a place that's better for the money. So then we moved to a place called Bracknell, which is in Berkshire. So I've lived in, I lived in Berkshire for maybe 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, it was in Berkshire. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm moving location. So I'm moving to Bracknell College to continue acting. And I remember, I was like, I'm going to create this new person because Growing up in London, I was this, I was an introvert. I wasn't that confident, especially wasn't confident with girls. I wasn't one of the, a lot of people, I was fairly popular in school because I was the nice guy. I was very nice. I wasn't, but I wasn't like a lad. I wasn't like, I wasn't like the popular lad in that way. Mm. I was very introverted and I was a virgin. No, no experience with girls. And I moved to this new location and I was 17 and I didn't want to be that Perry anymore. I didn't want to be that identity anymore because that identity was the boy who got abused by his granddad, you know? Mm. Uh, and I wanted to shift that identity. Oh. And I moved to Bracknell and I was like, right, when, when people start seeing me, because nobody's going to know me here. So I'm going to be this Perry who's extroverted. He's confident with the girls. He's slept with loads of girls already. Just as character, like I was literally an actor creating a new character. And mm. And I became that character and I faked it until I made it, so to, so to speak. Mm. And I did become that confident guy and, and things like that. But I was, I was running, I was shifting. And with my dad, I mean, we were, we were best friends, right? We, we really were. Um, That's what I wanted to ask you. Did you get on with your dad? Yeah, yeah. We were very similar. We had a lot of arguments because it got to an age, I think I was probably, I turned was like 15, 16, where my dad's an interesting man. And 
I'm fully aware whenever I say things like this, it paints him in a negative light, but he was a very nice guy. But he he was quite um, emotionally manipulative and emotionally abusive. He just had a certain way about him. And in what way? In in he he was he he was the master at belittling you he mm. does he did a very good job of belittling you like you weren't that much um so like i grew up trying to always make my dad proud and that he and uh, gain his love but he very very rarely told me that he was proud of me he didn't like it that i was acting if i did something cool he would he always had to be in control. He always had to be the masculine man. And I could never do something that was better than him. He would, he would push it down. And, um, and I got to an age where, like, for example, if I, if I was to do something wrong, I'll be mm. grounded. I'll be grounded to my, to my bedroom, but I only have pen and paper. And I wasn't allowed to leave the room. I'd have to, I'd have to ask to go to the toilet. And I remember numerous times I wasn't even allowed to speak to my dad. I would have to write him a letter, right, to ask to 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 apologize and ask if I can speak to him again, right? And and we lived in the same house and it's tiny two bedroom flat growing up in Chiswick, and I'd have to write him a letter, you know. Um, Why so, do you think he was like that? What happened to him in his sorry. life? What happened to him in his life? Do you think that made him like that? He, I always say that I, I left my fat, I left home when I was 19 and I've never lived back at home since then. And I'm nearly 27 now because I value freedom. I needed to get out and spread my own wings without my dad being down my neck. Now the way, the way, the reason why my dad raised me like that, where he would put me in like a, he would like cotton wool me. If I was ever going out, he needs the address, he needs the time, he needs the numbers of my friends and their parents. Like he was like, it was very much like that. And that's because of how he was raised. So he was raised, his mum, my nan, and my step granddad, his stepdad, they were alcoholics, like raging alcoholics. So every single day, they would always be in the pub. My dad would be at home. He would have to cook the dinner for when they get back. He would have to help them to bed. Um, he never got a, he never got love from them in the way that he wanted. He never got appraisal from them in the way that he wanted, mm. and that was pretty much his childhood. And he used to talk about that every now and then with me when he was alive. So when it came to parenting me, he made sure he was doing the opposite in regards to like I remember my dad saying that he could leave home, right, and not just not go home for days, and they wouldn't necessarily be like, "Where's Andy?" They, but they would be like. Why is my dinner not cooked? Mm. Right. Um, mm. So when it came to me leaving the house, it was just a complete opposite because to him, that's how he wanted his parents to be grown up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in a way creating this ideal family life that he always wanted. Yeah. Mm. So his father, Perry, what happened to his biological father? Yeah. So he's somebody that I would have loved to have met. They, um his dad and mm. that side of the family immigrated over they came over from um, Tipperary in Ireland uh many many years ago and he died before I was even born oh yeah 
so I wish I would have met him because I've heard many great stories about him. And, mm. Um, he he died. I think it was um, cancer that he died from. Um, and yeah, so that, yeah, so that that's that's what happened to him. My cousin, he was alive when my cousin was born, but he was gone uh, many years before I was born. Now, when um, your mum left, when you were four, did you have any form of contact with her over the years? Um, I, she, she would maybe call the home phone every, but I, I literally, growing up, I don't remember, I only ever remember seeing my mum once, maybe twice a year um, for, for a few years. Then I got a phone. And then we started to, to text a little bit more and then it started mm. to be a little bit more consistent. But growing up, I don't remember like phone calls with her. I don't remember anything like that. I just remember the one or two visits a year that I'll see her. Right. Okay. And when did you get back in contact after all those years? How long was it before you were um, back in contact and seeing her again? Yeah. So it was when I... Um, the consistency of being there every second weekend was when I, my late school years and my early college years. So I was still in school, so probably year 10. So I would have been maybe 14, 15. Mm. That's when, so before that, it used to be once a month from like, it, because I, I remember when it came out about the abuse and I remember being at my mum's flat and I remember her crying and that's because she, she knew what, what my granddad was like, because he, he, um, he, she had, he never sexually abused her, but he threatened her, pinned her up against the wall. So she knew what type of man he was. And when she found out about what he used to do to me, I remember her just like collapsing to the floor crying. And I was, so that was like 12. So I used to be around once a month from 12, 13. And then it started to be every second weekend as I grew older throughout late college and uh, late school and early college years. Okay. And did you, I mean, it's a difficult thing. Did you love your nan? Yes, very much. Mm, I got that impression. Even yeah. however, whatever she was like, you still loved her. Yeah, she was a diamond. Yeah she mm. looking back now is is i know why she she was an alcoholic and and because do you well i i have a good i have a good re, mm. i have a, a good guess as to why and me and my cousin my auntie we all think the same thing because when it got to a stage where grand my granddad was abusing my cousin kelly uh, and i'm saying her name because her name's in my book so her name's already out there and okay she um because one of the first stories in the book is hers so i put her story in the book and she got to a stage where she was just so it wasn't just you it was your cousin as well four there's four of us in the family there's four of you yeah so basically what what happened was i so my, my 2017, 16, 15, 14. So from 2014, so this is mm. when I was still at college in Bracknell, my dad started to drink and then the drinking had got a bit more and it got a bit more and the, the weekend drinking turned to weekday drinking 
the at-home drinking turned to in the car drinking. And he just became just a, an alcoholic. He was an, he was an invisible alcoholic, which is what I call it, because my mom never... Is, what does was, that mean? An invisible? I haven't heard that term before. I call it invisible because you wouldn't tell that he's drunk. He's a like very, a functioning alcoholic type yeah, of thing. Yeah, but like, yeah, yes. But like, mm. if he, he could be blind drunk and, and he's standing in front of you and you're having a conversation and you would not be able to tell. Only I was the only person who could tell. Mm. Right? And it was because mm. of how much I was around him. It was because of how well I knew him. His left eye would just have to squint ever so Like I'm talking ever so slightly and I knew that he had already been drinking but my mum it was a shocker to him when she found out after the she knew he was drinking a year before he died because they caught him out in the car drinking but I knew he'd been drinking oh. for ages because he would ask me even back in early days in London he would ask me to fill up the vodka bottles with water so my mum wouldn't find out and I used to do that for him because to me if I said no he'll guilt trip me as to mm. I'm not a good son obviously don't mm. him, I wouldn't do that mm. right I mean, addicts are the biggest manipulators, aren't they? They can manipulate you into all sorts of things that you would never dream of doing um, with anyone else. But when you love somebody, it's a very different story, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 So you're right there. And I, uh, and then he, when a year before he passed, we're talking 2016 here there was a film that came out called Spotlight. And Spotlight's a fantastic film. It's won many Golden Globes, won Best Picture. Probably one of my favorite films. It's about a, it's about a team of journalists in Boston. In, I can't remember what year it is, like the 60s or 70s. And they got whiff of a case of a priest molesting a child in Boston, in mm-hmm. America. And nobody wanted to touch the case because it was very taboo, way more taboo now than it, I mean, then than it was now. And not only that, but it, they're talking about priests. You know, you don't really go after people like that, men of the church. Mm. Um, and but she, there was this brave woman who was like, "No, I will go after it. I will go into it." And they went into it, and what got uncovered was a whole team. Uh, sorry, a whole underground world of priests molesting children all over the world. And my dad told me to watch it, and I watched it. And I remember being in the car because I was visiting home, and he says to me in the car, "And this is where the journey of." realizing what had been going on in the family started because he said to me he was like you seen the film yeah i said yeah he goes you know at the end of the film just before the credits there's a series of places all around the world that are made up of schools institutions churches that have reported cases of priests molesting children he goes and i said yeah yeah i saw that he goes well the school that your granddad grew up in in ireland is listed on there and then he said that to me, and, and but he just dropped it out of the blue. I never knew anything about my granddad prior to that, uh, in regards to in in the field of, of that. And when he said, "Is that, this your step granddad or your real granddad?" Step granddad. Okay. The, the abuser. The abuser. And, okay. And he and I just looked at him. And I said, "I said, like, what do you mean?" He goes, "Where Michael grew up, that's where he was. It was in that. It was in that church." And and I, I was like, "Oh," and I remember just being like. So that explains it then. And he just looked at me as if I had as if I had just excused um my granddad of what he had done to me. Mm. He just looked at me and goes, No, it doesn't excuse it doesn't it doesn't um make sense for anything. And he got out of the car and slammed the car door and and, uh, and that was just a 
a quick reaction from my dad that I was used to emotionally. But then, then, um, it was about a year later, in in dad was still an alcoholic. In January 2017, my dad became a diabetic. He just he just mm. went very rapidly downhill. How and old was he? 48. 48, okay. And then June the 1st, 2017, he I got two pictures from my little brother who was at home. One was an ambulance van. One was dad on the bed with a paramedic standing next to him. I called him up. And then, this, and then um, I was like, what's going on? And my stepmom was like, don't worry, Perry, don't worry. He's just, his blood sugar levels are off. He's basically, you know, from the diabetes. They're taking him down to the hospital to even him back out. I said, okay. My dad was cracking jokes. It was all good. Mm. Then they called me two hours later and told me that my dad's dead. He had, a, he had a heart attack in the back of the van. He didn't make it to the hospital. Oh, my goodness. And... And oh, it was, yeah. and that was just when everything came crashing down. I thought it was a lie. I went to the hospital. My cousin called me up. His uncle lay dead. I said, no, no, he's not dead. It's just a sick joke. Go down there. And then I uh, walk into the room and he's on the table. His head back, his skin color's already changed. And it was the most surreal thing I'd ever seen. And, and as you can expect, I went through a grieving process, six or seven months or so. Mm. Um, and then, and then, it was just, it was very, it was very, it's very interesting. It made me, it made me reflect a lot on myself. It made me reflect a lot on my dad. Cause then I started, yeah. like this, I started to, to, to play the blame game. And, you know, I was blaming myself because that morning that he died, my dad texted me that a week before that we had a blade. He sent me this long message to me and to my auntie basically saying how we don't love him and we don't respect him. And what's the point of him being alive? Like something, something silly. And I remember my auntie called me that. What's he on about? And I said, he's, he's had a drink. He's just, he's just, he, tomorrow he'll apologize for sending that. And he did the following day apologize because I don't know what I was even thinking by doing that. And yeah. that morning that he died, June the 1st, he texted me saying, um, I've been up all night. I've got a pain in my stomach. And I saw it. And he had, like, he called me that morning and I, and I didn't have my phone with me. And I remember seeing that. And I just texted him back saying, oh, is it the hay fever? And he didn't respond back. But I just, I just thought it was just my dad overreacting about something again. Mm. He, and then, then he died because of that pain, because that was one of the symptoms of the cause of death. And I, you know, I just went down the path of blame myself or not messaging back. I went down the path of blame my dad for how he used to treat me, treat other members of the family. And, and I was playing this blame game. And, mm. and, it's interesting because I spoke to a friend who lost his dad and he said how he managed to get over, how he managed to get through it was through forgiveness, forgiving himself and forgiving his dad. So I was like, interesting. So I was doing that. And then, and then I uh, went to a, a business mastermind event because I was an online fitness coach at the time. And oh. I went there and it was me and four other people. And that was the first time I ever broke, that was the first time I broke my silence to other people that I didn't know. I, I spoke about the abuse, I spoke about everything that happened. And then four days later, I was driving home and I was like, right, I want to, I want to share this again. I just want to get the story out there. I've shared it to four people. They didn't burn me down with pitchforks. They didn't laugh at me. Mm. They did believe me. I want to do this again. And I was like, right, I'll do it when I get home. I was like, no, I can't. So if I do it when I get, if I, when I get home and I walk in through my front door, I'll go back into my comfort zone and I won't do it because I'll talk myself out of it. So I pulled over my car on the road, got my phone out, 
seven takes on the seventh try. I uploaded the video to Facebook, and that is what literally everything changed from that video. Because everybody, every Tom Dick and Harry that was connected to me on social media knew mm. I was abused. They knew that I was still struggling with my dad's death. And uh, and and also what the funny thing is, is because then all my family saw the video, they knew about the abuse. My stepmom called me up and they that time that my stepmom caught it in the living room and she called me out of the room, she thought that that was the only time that I was sexually abused by, by my granddad, which is evident that when my dad was questioning me, that was the only time that I spoke of. I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't speak about the other times, but that was the mm. only time that I spoke about. So then when I went to my auntie's house, in, in response to your question earlier, when I said there's four of us, I went around to my auntie's house. Mm. And then uh, my cousin was like, that's so brave of you. You know, you know where I was. I was like, I know, because she's told me plenty of times about what, what used to happen between her and him. But then my auntie, she was sitting there and she was like, well, it wasn't just you. And I was like, well, yeah, it's me and Kelly. She's like, no, it wasn't just you two. She goes, it was also me. And I was like, oh. And she goes, and it was also your dad. Oh and my then, goodness. And then everything clicked into everything clicked into place. Mm. My dad was sexually abused growing up multiple mm. times by my granddad. He stayed silent on it. I do remember my, my brother, and my dad didn't even tell me this story. It was only after he died. My brother came around to my house and he was like, Yeah, he goes, Oh, do you remember when dad pinned your granddad up against the wall? I was like, No. Like, what do you mean? He goes, well, he didn't tell you. I said, No. He goes, that's how the abuse stopped. He goes, um, Michael just did one thing just at the wrong time to, to dad. And my dad just flipped and he pinned up up against the wall. And he said, if you ever touch me sexually like that again, I will kill you. And, and from that moment, my dad was, I think he was a late teenager. He stopped. And that was the last time that my granddad had done anything. And I think that's why my dad allowed me to go around my, nan, my nan's house when my granddad was there because my granddad didn't have another episode sexually within that realm for... Mm for 15 maybe 20 years you know um but yeah and then it made sense it made sense while my dad became an alcoholic yeah I, I text him the last time i saw him and he came around my house i text him saying why are you drinking so much and he said to fight away the demons at the time i was like what demons is he talking about i told my stepmom she's like what demons made sense now and she didn't know either no well, I think, I don't know. I've never said to my stepmom, did you know he was abused? But whenever I've spoken about it, I remember the first time I spoke about it, she never gave me a reaction like she didn't know. So therefore, I think my dad must have confided in her and told her, mm, what he mm. or at least some of it. But she's never told me I didn't know about that, about your dad. She would have done if she didn't know. So I reckon he did tell her. And what about your nan? Did she know what was going on? So she it got to a stage where my cousin, it got too much for my cousin with the abuse. She told my auntie, her mom. So she told her mom. And obviously because it happened to because it happened to the mum, her mum, mm -hmm. uh, she's like, right, we're going to go around there. So they went around there. My granddad must have been at work. He wasn't at home. They told my nan what he had been doing. And she sat there and she said, I don't believe it. Kelly is doing this for attention. You're doing it for attention. He would never do anything like that. And she completely rejected the story in her face. Now, we never spoke about it again. They never went around and I spoke about it again. However, we had a very in-depth conversation about this. 
two years ago after I shared my story and uh, we we're talking about it and they're like yeah she goes my auntie was like I remember seeing my mom's face as in my nan she's like I remember seeing mom's face when I spoke to her about it and I knew deep down she knew that he was capable of that and she knew that he was doing that but because she my nan was a lonely person the only person really she had she didn't have friends the only person she really had was um my granddad if if my nan was to be like okay i accept the story she couldn't stay with him because if she stayed with him and she's staying with somebody who's sexually abusing her family and i think the the, i think the fear of of being alone and leaving him and confronting that story was more of a challenge than just denying the story and staying with him and we think that he was abusive to her too we don't know if, if it was sexually but like there'd be times where she would have a black eye and she would say she just fell over and we think that it was him. Uh-huh. So she was definitely in an abusive relationship. So knowing, knowing that about my dad, um, that he went through it and, and I was speaking to, um, speaking to my auntie about like granddad and then she goes well yeah your granddad grew up uh in a boarding school it was him and his brother there was in a catholic church boarding school in ireland and the priests would abuse and they would rape the students there and your granddad and brother was amongst those students so it's evident and i talk about this a lot about breaking that generation cycle because which is what i yeah. because my granddad he was abused he never seeked out the help and he took the path knowingly or unknowingly of projecting pe- that pain onto others that was once projected onto him. Now, my dad, similar boat. He was abused. He never sought the help. He never faced his story. He never broke his silence, really, because I never knew about it. Um, and he didn't inflict the pain onto others, but more so, you know, inflicted the pain onto himself and became an alcoholic and, you know, dead at the age of 48 and i was like i'm not going down that path and if i can help it i don't want anyone else to go down that path too which is what i was saying to begin with my dad dying in silence as an abused victim is helping me to help other people not going down that same path and break that silence it's a tragic story in the sense of sometimes when people die we actually get to know them better somehow in a strange way isn't it we don't know the road they've taken as you say we don't know what they've been through and then it's too late when they die to understand all of that but so that their life was not in vain you now doing this and having this in a way it's a crusade to help other victims of such unspeakable things that happen out there I think it wasn't all for nothing. Does that make sense? In a strange way, you can, it's, you know, when people have wars and battles and they don't have to be, you don't have to be in all these battle zones because people can live in these huge wars within their souls and in their minds. And they can sometimes be worse than any kind of war. And not a lot of people understand that, but um, there's many people fighting many battles every single day, you know, even to get up out of your bed and to put one step in front of the other can be a huge battle for somebody. Yeah, yeah. 
of course, of course, I, I, I do very much agree with that. And I think, I think, I don't know, I don't know how I would have been able to cope or how I'd be operating if I wasn't using the story that I've lived to act as a, I don't know, as a platform to, to help others. I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I'm a strong believer in the universe and I truly believe that the universe has paved this out in order to happen. I do. I, I, I'm, I believe in things like that as well. And, and I think that somehow, you know, you're a warrior of light, as they say, truly, because you have fought these battles and in a way you fight them still every day because it takes great amount of courage and determination to come out and to say it um, for the world to listen. You know, you're, you are now on the stage of the world. And I think it's incredible. And I, I really want to, you know, for what it's worth from one soul to another, Perry, really to commend you for this, because I think, you know, looking at all the people that the lives you've touched so far, and especially with this book, and it's called Breaking the Silence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's available on Amazon. And um, is it an ebook or is it a print book? What sort of format is it in? It's both. So you can get the uh, the ebook, mm. um, which here's the thing, right? I originally, like, originally I was like, oh, I don't, I just want this book everywhere. And I was like, but I do know that, I do know that the, 12-year-old little girl who is at home getting raped by a dad who wants to read this book, can't buy the book because if the book gets delivered to the home, the dad opens it up and sees what it is, he will flip out and it puts him into mm. danger. So I was like, okay, well, I can do it as an ebook. And I was like, what can I do it for free? But on Amazon, you can't. But the cheapest you can do it for is 99 cents or 77p. So I was mm. like, well, I hope that kids teenagers they can download that so it's it's an is as an ebook and it's as a paperback is on amazon every amazon going and uh, all profits of every every bit of profit from all the book sales that come in i don't pocket anything it goes straight to the charity now this charity is called we rescue kids now did you set this charity up perry so the the story of it is so this mean is two co-founders julia and sam and they're both American, I'm British. Juliet, she comes from a foster care system. So she was put on a doorstep of a foster home as a baby. The foster parents took her in. Then as she grew up, she became of an age where she was a perfect candidate for the ring that they were running in this foster home. She then became part of a list of, uh, of like, um, she was like clients. She was like a client to um, their clients as in like the foster home would have a list of of people mm. that would pay they would come around the kids would line up and each kid would get raped or tortured by the people um, that they hired and that was that was what she, that's the foster home she grew up in until she was rescued from a foster mum who then take her took her on and um, and adopted her so she very early days had had this idea for the charity she put the wheels on it to try and get the message out there to try and get things going. Then we've been connected for many years and she, she knew about my story. She knew what I was doing by TikTok and my platform. And she's like, surely we can get together with this charity. You know, you can come on board and I've got Sam, it can be all three of us. And then 
And that's what happened. And then we brainstormed the name. We came out with Rerescue Kids. And then we've been raising money. And our big campaign went live yesterday where you can, like how you can sponsor an animal in the wild. Now yeah. you can a child. And as you sponsor a child, what you're doing is you're paying for a, a, a survivor, a child survivor of sexual abuse to have therapy every single month with a child therapist to help them heal from what they've been through and move on positively. And then once lockdown and everything's finished, um, because we have to wait for nonprofit status and we've been waiting for a year and a half now and it's still going and it's gone even slower because of everything that's gone down with coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. Everything's been backlogged. So as soon as we are nonprofit um, status, then we can then open up our first safe home. Ah, uh, uh, okay. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be opening up safe homes so we can start taking in kids that are in the system and having them in our safe homes and protecting them and giving them education and then making sure that they go to the right family after they've come out of our care. So we're going to have an in-person safe home uh, branch of our charity tree, if you want to call it that, as well as an online um, branch, which is for therapy. And where is this, Perry? Where is it? Is it in many countries or just one country? Well, at the moment, it's America. Now, once it's gone non-profit non um, status in America, mm. I will then be, um, uh, I'll be then be bringing it over to the UK once I've hired a UK lawyer, but I have to wait for the approval from the US government first, and then I'll be bringing it over to the UK so we can open up safe homes here as well. It sounds an, like an amazing project. Thank you. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and your dad really would be proud of you for all the right reasons, you know, um, incredible story, incredible. Now, as we come to the end um, of the episode, Perry, you know, I really want to thank you because words fail me, really. Uh, what you have gone through, what you have survived and how you have turned it around in a way is like the sword of Excalibur, you know, that the story you've taken that and you've cut through all of the shadows and all of the darkness and you've won. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And it's, um, you're right. And it's been, it's been a long battle. It has. Mm. And it's, um, I don't know. Sometimes I sit here and I'm like, oh, I just wish that, I just wish that my dad was in a place because here's the thing. So many people are like, for example, my, my stepdad is going down the same path and I'm trying to help him, but he's just not accepting the help. And, and I know from experience that if they don't want to be helped, if they're not in a, if they're not in the, in the stage of accepting that help, you cannot help them until they want the help. Because with my dad, we sent him to AA meetings and we tried to get him therapy, tried to get him help. And he kept on declining all of it. He, he said he was going to the AA meetings. We didn't find out that he wasn't actually turning up, but he also leave the house for the duration of the AA meeting, mm. you know? And it's like, there's only so much. And then I remind myself that there's only so much you can do because if you go down that path of, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have done this. Then it's a very dangerous path because there's no point in even 
entertaining that train of thought because it's already in the past and all you can do is just use that to help the present and help the future. Yeah, and you can't, you know, every single person has their journey in life. And if we go back to the beginning of the episode where we were talking about adversity and you were saying about people need to feel adversity, sometimes, um, Perry, I, I do believe sometimes you have to be in the darkness for a while. You have to face your own demons. You have to face your fears. And then, only then, you can make a decision. Do you want to change your life? Or do you want to stay there? And we have to respect that person, that once we've given them, in a way, the key to the door, it is really entirely up to them to take that key to freedom. Mm -hmm. We cannot force anyone to do anything that they don't want to do because it won't be lasting. No. No. No, you're right. And it's the same thing for, you know, like I said, I come from the fitness industry and it's the same thing. You can't Uh push somebody to lose weight or to put weight on. No. You can't push a partner to hire a PT and that. Mm get into that dress size you know and even if they start <laughs> no. off, yeah you know, and even if they start doing it to please you because you're their partner it's very you know it's it's very likely that they will quit and trail off or you know in some chances they do follow through but they're not happy and i never did it for you mm. in the first place yeah, yeah. and then it's happen. not it's not lasting change no. it is temporary and then it adds extra psychological issues and problems because then they will say, well, you told me I did it because of you. Yeah. And then what's the yeah. point of that? Now, what are you doing at the moment? So you, you've written the book, you're appearing on MTV and Sky and all these other places. What else are you doing, Perry? So my other, so we got, we got the book, we have, the work with the charity, mm-hmm. we have my acting. So I um, will be wanting to move. I want to draw the message of breaking the silence and put that into a film. So like how Spotlight was done to shine a light on sexual abuse within the Catholic church system. I want to do a similar thing with Spotlight and create a feature film that helps highlight my message on breaking the silence. Um, so that'd be a big project coming. And um, and I also do some coaching um, with clients and helping them with their stories. So whether they want to put their story into a book, I help them put their story into a book. They, if they want just to understand what their story is and how to communicate to speak on stage, I help them do that too. Um, okay. Okay. That's good because you're helping them to sort of, to find their purpose in life. Yeah. And do you do one-to-one with clients? I suppose in this time, it's sort of what? Zoom calls and things like that. Yeah, so I only work one-to-one. It's a very, um, I don't know if I would ever do group. I really prefer when it's personal and it's just do a story, you need that one-on-one. So yeah, so I do one-on-one with uh, over Zoom calls. And where can people contact you, Perry, to find out either about your charity or your book or anything else or your work or if they you know want to become a client what's the best place um for you to be found sure i mean there's there's uh, three ways to contact me so you can either uh facebook me 
my handle mm-hmm. is perry.w.power for the URL. Um, on Instagram is at I am Perry Power. Or you can email me, which is perrypower73 at gmail.com. Either or. Okay. Now, I always ask my guests this at the end. If you could, in a few lines, say something to the people out there that has helped you in your life, that can give them hope and that inspiration, really, to keep going, what would you say to them? I would say to just know that the path you're on, the day, the days that you are experiencing right now, whether they're a mixture of good and bad, just good or just bad, they're happening for a specific reason, for a purpose. And as long as you're open and you're aware that where you're out on your journey right now is for a reason, then just have faith in, and that's the key word there, have faith in the destination that you're meant to be at will happen if you carry on pushing through because I've been in entrepreneurship for seven years and I've started, stopped many different businesses. I have been homeless, living out my car. I given my dog, my meals to eat whilst I wasn't eating anything when I could have gotten a job. But the reason why I stuck through that for seven years of falling flat on my ass is because I had faith that I was going through those for a very specific reason. And if I was to quit, I wouldn't learn my lesson and I wouldn't get to where I needed to go. So I needed to push through and it got me to where I am today with this message because I pushed through it. And I truly believe that if I carry on to do so, I'll get to where I need to go. So everybody who's listening, who's helped me at some stage, hopefully this helps you to just keep going, keep pushing and just believe that you will get to where you need to go if you don't give up. Because that's the only thing. Like, I have this conversation a lot with actors. And, mm. you know, it's known that it's one of the most brutal industries in the world. Because if, if you're a successful actor, you're famous. It's, it, that's just as simple as it is. Because if, if, you, if you're successful and you're booked, then you'll be booked on screen. That's where the money is, which means you'll be noticed, which means you're a famous actor. And people are like, I will never make it as a famous actor. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? They said, because very small amount of people get there. And I was like, listen, you, and I truly believe this, there's always space at the top for the greats. You will, if I'm talking acting sense now, I mm-hmm. will make it as a professional, as a successful actor who's making movies that, are, that is really changing the lives of people all over the world. I will get there because the only way that I won't get there is if I die because I'm not giving up on that. It's just not happening. So I will get there eventually. And I think that that is a transferable um lesson is a transferable bit of information in regards to believing in faith and holding on to that from every area of your life just as long as you don't give up you will get to exactly where you need to go and if you don't know where you need to go by the way if you're like but i don't know what the end vision is then that's fine it will come to light as you carry on pushing through and what is it that actually gives you that strength of faith perry what is it that gives you that unshakable faith? I I think it's because I because I'm a very 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 independent person, um, extremely independent, and I very much of I'm the one who needs to give me the confidence. I'm the one who needs to give me the love. I'm the one who needs to give me the the faith, right? Um, and 
what really helps me is to keep going, to hold on to that faith is to one paint the picture of what, of what this vision is, you know, is, is painting the picture of me sitting in a screening in a private premiere screening in the central London. And I'm watching me on the screen with everybody else in the cinema audience. And it's a, it's a movie with a very strong message. And I'm seeing that. And because I believe in myself so much and I know that I have the skills, the drive and the, the determination to get there. I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense to me to quit because I know I'll get there. It's just, it's just that faith in myself that I've built up for so long because of the adversities. And here's the thing is because I'm like, nothing worse can happen to me. You know, I, four months ago, I had to put my dog down and I, and I, and she was the only thing in my life. She was the closest thing to me my entire life. And she was only four and a half and I had to put her down. That was the toughest thing I've ever been through. And I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) That's okay. Thank you. And uh, seeing my dad die, going through the abuse, Mm. all these things is like, Jesus, like, what else you got life first because i'll tell you what i bloody smashed through it and this and this is what we're talking about earlier around the darkness the light and the darkness and facing adversity when you face adversity and you get through those adversities you best believe that you're going to believe in yourself because how can you not you wouldn't be here right now standing if you never met exactly exactly so in reality it's unless we believe in ourselves well, we can't really believe or achieve anything. It is actually, it comes from deep within us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And realizing, I know we've said it many times, but I believe this, and realizing the power of our own light, because our own light can overcome a huge darkness. Exactly. Exactly. Bang on. As you have shown, as you have shown. Wow. Amazing, I have to say. And, you know, I want to encourage everyone out there to check Perry out, Perry Power, and have a look at the sort of um, things that he does and go to Amazon and have a look at his book and buy his book. Um, And are you happy, Perry, for anyone to contact you at any time if they want to collaborate or just talk to you? Oh, yeah. If you, anything, any question, if you want to share mm. your story, if you just, if you have a question about, you know, if you're a victim of, of abuse, mm. you know, I'm just, just, just know that I talk to people break their silence with me. And, 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 and this is no exaggeration every single day because of how loud I'm making this message. I'm put, I'm positioning myself as a person that people can come to, to break their silence. So I, I speak to everybody very vulnerably and very open very non-judgmental every mm. single day. So if you want to come to somebody who, who is like that, then feel free to reach out to me and I'll lend my ears and I'll lend my heart and, um, and I'll be there for you in that way. So whatever you need. What a beautiful message. You know, it's like people, you know, the power of the human spirit. I always say this. It's so tremendous, isn't it? That we really don't know what we're capable of until you know we've actually gone through it and sometimes you look back and you just think I don't know how I did that but as you said if you can do that you can do anything exactly exactly as cliche as it sounds it is very true it but the simple truths are the best aren't they thank you so much Perry for joining me today and you know I really am honored 
that you have come on to share this story, which is not an easy story, but it's something that I am convinced will help many people out there to break free from that prison, whatever their prison is. So thank you. And please do come again and um, share with us, you know, in a while, all your other pursuits and where you are with the charity and what you're up to. I will do. Thank you very much for having me on, Mimi. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And you look after yourself. You too. All right. And take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Perry Power. What an amazing story. My goodness, we really don't know what anyone is going through at any given time. And we must be gentle with everyone we meet. But please, don't suffer in silence, whatever you're going through right now. There are so many organisations and so many people out there that can help. Be brave, dear souls. Be brave. Until next time, look after yourselves and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life. Brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovik.co.uk.